This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Long before the first westward travelers trekked towards the Pacific in search of a new world, stories were shared amongst indigenous tribes, from the southwest to the California coast, of strange, out-of-place things existing beneath the sands. The remnants of mighty ships. As prospectors traveled through the Colorado desert and surrounding barren lands, the stories began to seem all too real, as many reported to have passed a great ship, half buried in rock and sand. However, the location was so remote that to venture back a second time meant taking your life in your own hands. However, the tales would persist, with some claiming to have once again discovered a lost ship, laden with treasures, gold and silver bars, black pearls, and jewels from exotic lands. But could such a ship have truly made its way this far inland? And if so, why would it have been there? Or are these accounts mere myth and lore of western deserts and its travelers? Join us on Into the Portal as we discuss explorers, evidence, and legends as we search for the lost ship of the Mojave. Hello, and welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber A. And I'm Andrew McKay. We are back with a brand new episode. We're doing a one-off today. That's right. So no big grand series planned. No, no, (laughs) and it feels weird that we finally have moved on from Sasquatch because that Mm -hmm. was a while. Yeah. And uh, we hope you guys enjoyed that series. It was pretty... I'm still sitting around thinking like, oh, I need to do a post about Sasquatch today. <laughs> like, I need to like do Sasquatch promo today. It's like, no, no, we're, we're past it now. <laughs> yeah. No, it's kind of funny. We, we're wandering back into the desert, but we're also... It's like we're combining... We're like joining forces, our marine myths and legends with our desert legends that yeah. we love so much. Definitely. <laughs> and we're back in North America. We are. So we're, yeah, sticking to this side of the ocean this week. Mm-hmm. What are we talking about, Andrew? Well, today we're talking about the lost ship of the Mojave Desert, or really more um, broadly, lost ships of the desert mm. um, near the Colorado River, different locales throughout California, Arizona, mm-hmm. but stories of treasure ships, you know, that could still be out there buried in the sand. Mm-hmm. But before we get right into it, we have a tiny bit of housekeeping and right off the bat, shout out to Zenger from the Zeng This podcast for joining us on Patreon and yeah, contributing. Yeah. Man, thank you so, so much. Also, we had a, a Rachel join us as well. So shout out to you, Rachel. Yeah. Really appreciate you joining us on there and stoked to have you. So today we're talking about treasure ships and essentially this story of the lost ship of the Mojave speaks of a vessel laden with treasures hidden beneath the sands in a place where it really should never have been. So full of gold, silver bars, black pearls, diamonds, 
jewels, exotic goods from locales all around the world is kind of this typical treasure ship, whether it's a Spanish galleon or a pirate ship or whatever it may be. But reports by immigrants, prospectors, and different people traveling from east to west in the early days of the United States, they spoke of witnessing, seeing an ancient ship lying in the desert sands Mm. at all kinds of different locations. So, you know, subsequently buried and then uncovered by the blowing sand. So, like, buried, re-uncovered, buried again type deal. Very interesting. Um, This is a little... For me, the more I think about this, the idea of shifting sands, obviously this is a desert landscape, not desert, it is arid, it's not so much desert as in you get these epic sand dunes like you get in the Sahara, but you do get shifting um, shifting landscapes still. Oh, absolutely. And even just to add to that, you mentioned immigrants, prospectors, travelers, but even beyond that, right, the the indigenous peoples and their stories of of witnessing things. And even in the broader scope of this legend, right, the bodies of water in which that would have facilitated these ships actually being exactly and and ending up in this neck of the woods. Ancient (laughs) bodies of water that were believed to be myth Mm -hmm. by, you know, early settlers and things like that. In some ways, like I've kind of alluded to this already, like we should be saying plural, like lost ships, Mm -hmm. because legends talk about various historical maritime vessels being, you know, supposedly becoming stranded and then lost in the, you know, the American Southwest, like we said, most commonly the Colorado desert area part of the larger Sonoran Desert, and this, you know, this is a massive territory. It's about 7 million acres, 20,000 square kilometers. Mm -hmm. And this has been happening since the period following the American Civil War, when there's been stories about Spanish treasure galleons buried beneath the desert sands north of the Gulf of California because there's so much activity there. When was the American Civil War again? I'm trying to remember oh, man, that name. Don't put me on the spot right now. It's like don't. 1700, so correct? Oh my gosh. Oh. Let me look that up. <laughs> I'll look it up. No worries. Okay. So back to the legend here, though. So this all started with this mass migration, right? And it really kicked off during, you know, the early days of the gold rush. But during the 1800s, this main route into Southern California was the Yuma Trail. So, you know, across Arizona, California deserts, and there was a lot of people. So immigrants, gold seekers, they're all traveling out here across this really treacherous landscape, right? Um, Along the way, they claim to have seen this half-buried hull of an Mm -hmm. ancient ship. (laughs) Kind of vague. Well, what kind of ancient ship are we talking about here? Obviously, early travelers and things like that might not have been... You know, they might see something that is a Viking ship or is a Spanish ship. Could they really differ- differentiate? Who knows? Right, right? exactly. Yeah, um, that's a good but question. But they claim to have seen this, right? And they told stories of this, of this discovery throughout these towns as they settled along towards the west. And then one of these towns was San Bernardino, California, which kind of became a hotbed for this story <laughs> of the lost ship. Okay. Um, many promised to get back out there and return to the desert to try to find it. But of course, once you've passed these extremely deadly areas, you don't really tend to go back, right? No. It's pretty hard to get back. Most people die trying. And to go even back. I would imagine that it would be quite easy to get turned around. Uh, I would imagine landmarks are few and far between. Yeah. <laughs> and then even your sense, your your perceptions, right? Probably would be. Uh, compromised, Definitely. depending on how much water and food you managed to bring with you. Well, dehydration was obviously the number one killer. Yeah. Not the scorpions or the deadly snakes or spiders or no. coyotes and wolves and mm-hmm. different things like that that can get you. Exactly. So th- a lot of this has to do with a more 
well, the origins of this legend kind of obviously have to connect back to a body of water, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get into that, though, just going back to the, my little fact checking there, uh, I was thinking of the American Revolution, which yes. was in the 1700s, yes. or yeah, 1700s, 1776. Right. But then there was the uh, Civil War, right. which occurred in the 1800s. So that was 1861 to 65. Right. Yeah. Sorry, we we're not American, so we have to brush up. Well, on we that really, yeah, br- brush up is the <laughs> word because we should know that. I am actually baffled that I went through my entire, well, it took me five years to do my degree. I never, ever had an American history class. Ever. You know and what? I, I don't think it, I did either. But you had it in high school, though. I never had it in high school. No, did, yeah, I guess So it's just completely missed, and yeah. then I just never, I never Well, it gets lumped in there with, like, military history that we took oh, and stuff like right. that, right? Like, yes. But not specifically just American history. For me, military history is more so European military history. True. Especially going really... back, way back. Yeah. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah. Cleared that one up. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Let's get into this interesting lake because obviously we're talking about a very dry, arid region. Yeah. But could there at one time or at multiple times throughout history have existed a body of water capable of having ships such as this, like a Spanish galleon or even <laughs> a, maybe a, a Viking longboat or something like that um, travel through? Right. So there is such a lake and it is part of native american um, myths and folklore in the area of the colorado desert and also um just across into the mainland right so lake coia is what it's known as and essentially it's kind of known as this mythical lifeblood of water that emerges out of the desert landscape far from any coasts and it's it's a magical place of reverence to a lot of indigenous people yeah and of course, before before the advent of modern science, um, geology and that sort of thing, even like um, aerial photography and all that, it was kind of hard to imagine a body of water as big as Lake Kauia existing. But now we can see evidence of these ancient shorelines all over today yeah. in the desert. There was this one excerpt I pulled from Geology of the Imperial Valley, which is in this area, and it was by a name, man named uh, Eugene Singer. And he just says, here's a quote from him, there is abundant evidence that the basin, so the Salton Basin is what he's talking about, um, was occupied by multiple lakes during uh, this period. So he was talking about... Um, Oh, he was talking about a few hundred years previous. Okay. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> it says here, wave-cut shorelines at various elevations are still preserved on the hillsides of the east and west margins of the present lake, the Salton Sea, showing that this basin um, was occupied intermittently as recently as a few hundred years ago. Wow. hmm The last of the Pleistocene lakes to occupy this basin was Lake Kauia, identified um, on older maps as Lake Leconte. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it was around, this is an ancient body of water that kind of recedes and then flows into the valley, like we said, like the Salton Basin. So that actually right. encompasses, uh, well, I have it right here, burp, 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 the Salton Basin, Coachella Valley, right, as, okay. as far north as modern day Palm Springs. And this would have drained into the Californian Gulf. Wow. Okay. Yes. So as the waters from the Colorado, Colorado, <laughs> the Colorado, Colorado, the Colorado River, <laughs> as the Colorado waters receded, um, as various, you know, um, areas or not areas, what am I talking about? Um, periods of drying and then warming and et cetera, et cetera. It would have just resulted in this, uh, sporadic 
sort of lake that yeah. came and went. Like it comes and goes. So it's it would have seemed crazy. quite mythical, right? Definitely. Mm-hmm. But it comes and goes, and it's like when it's there, it sticks around for a while because there's obviously accounts of people, you know, finding shells and different, like, you know, remnants of marine life, so to speak. So it's like it's there for a bit, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? But it's so bizarre that such a massive body of water could exist, go away, exist, exist go, away. go away. And there is ideas. So like now we're in the Holocene epoch and that began approximately 12,000 years ago up to present day. And essentially in this era or epoch, the Colorado river, um, with its, um, tributaries is kind of responsible for the flowing in of this, uh, Lake Cobia. Yeah. Before though, in, uh, the periods of like, uh, glaciation. So in, even into the Pleistocene era, um, it could have been supported by melting glaciers oh, okay. things like that. Um, yeah. That's a lot of water then, right? A lot of water right? in like, different could've... periods of time. Right. So it could have actually even been, you know, a lake at one point in time, a, a decent sized lake. Mm-hmm. And then at another period of time, at a, you know, a few hundred years later or something, another period of indigenous oral tradition and history, mm-hmm. way bigger, mm-hmm. like way more capable of a galleon making it onto the lake. And the other part of that is once it's way bigger, there's more chance of these estuaries and streams and tributaries actually connecting back to the sea and providing right. these pathways for early explorers. And then they would have disappeared. So they would have been essentially stuck in land. The things of myth. That's how myths exactly. exist, right? Um, yeah. So that there, there is this belief then in some circles that the lake could have at times been connected to the Pacific. So, So, yeah, a lot of people will say that this is entirely possible and that the the periods of drying would have just obviously left uh, the explorers high and dry. Exactly. (laughs) Literally. And it's interesting because if you actually look at the Salton Basin, there exists that small sea. It's like the Salton Sea or whatever. But you can see, you can just see it, how it would have um, supported this much larger body of water. It's like the depression is there. Uh, it's quite interesting. I recommend anyone just to look it up. It's <laughs> quick Google. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's a, uh, it's, and obviously this whole area now is of course, like we've mentioned, like Coachella, like where the music festival is, like all the way up to Palm Springs, like yeah. heavily, heavily populated mm-hmm. areas, which is one of the reasons why people think like, oh, this is so unlikely, right? No one's, there's no lost ship out there. No one can find a lost ship out there. Surprisingly, very little LIDAR and things like that have been done in a lot of areas that are still, mm-hmm. you know, uninhabited desert essentially, right? Yeah. Well, the Salton Basin definitely isn't, like, highly populated. No, no, no. Not po- well, not populated as in people live there, but, yeah. like, people go there all the time. It is true. It is, it is not, it's a massive It area. is not a hard area to get to now. You know right? what? Maybe that explains some of those people that come back from Coachella and they're like, I hallucinated. I saw shit. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe they weren't hallucinating. Maybe. <laughs> Mass sticking out of the sand. <laughs> so the story gets even more interesting when we introduce another character, uh, a man by the name of Charlie Cluster. He comes around... Uh, in the 1840s, so after the, he kind of fought in the American-Mexican War. Yes. And this man, Charlie Cluster, we don't really know, like, what's his background? Did he come, it's like, pretty, was he born in America? Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. American. It's it's kind of vague, like, yeah, he came from the East Coast, and, um, I mean, we didn't really pull up too, too much about his family. He came from mm-hmm. not a lot of money, you know. Uh, he was a basic prospector, right? Yeah. He's looking for his fortunes much. in America. That's right. So after he's done um, fighting in the war, he ends up going west, (laughs) like so many people did, to the uh, Californian-American frontier. Mm -hmm. He was looking for gold, 
and other sorts of wealth, I guess, <laughs> whatever he can get his hands on. <laughs> well, I mean, gold is the gold is the goal of everyone, but pretty much just looking for any better life. Any better life. And the promise of wealth and prosperity, right? That's what that was the allure for so many people. And it was funny, but before we sat down to record this, Andrew you made the comment. It was like the only people that made money off of the gold rushes were the merchants pretty much the saloon owners the uh the the brothel owners tavern the, you know, owners, the taverns the, yeah, yeah exactly the people that were selling wares <laughs> i was out walking selling my wares <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so all these americans <laughs> yeah. all these americans and um different uh, immigrants and all this were basically yeah trying to make their fortunes off the land and these seemingly boundless resources so Charlie didn't have a lot of money, so no. he took the Southern Overland Route, which was described in the documentary we're watching. It's not the best way to go. Mm. It's very harsh, very hostile, but it's the cheapest way. Mm. So he endured brutal cold, burning heat, um, many hostile species of plants and animals and people, because yes. yeah, the, the Native Americans were very fierce. Their territory was right in the middle of Charlie's route, so he had to be very careful it's, what it's, he was it's doing. crazy to think imagine traveling at this time in the Amer you know the development of the u.s and like having to to, to think about that like it's mm -hmm. that places were just completely you know hostile people hadn't been there or even, yeah right like mm -hmm. you're crossing through you're trying to get someplace and this is like just uncharted wilderness other than the people who have already been there for ten thousand years reminds me of the revenant yes right? very where much it's just so. very there's this wisp of civilization that can just disappear with the snap of the finger yeah. it, and it's just you're out there it's just the frontier that's that's there's no law it's i wouldn't just... have lasted 15 minutes like... <laughs> <laughs> but anyways yeah so essentially taking this route meant that charlie was taking his life in his hands and it was here that he was actually first exposed to the idea of something very strange and out of place mm -hmm. far out in the desert so the these were, this was a tribe that he came across, right? He, it was called the Kauia. Yes. The Kauia people. Yes. And I'm, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that, but they basically, Charlie came across these peoples and they were actually quite um, helpful. <laughs> they didn't kill him. <laughs> they, they gave him a place around their fire. And they also told him a tale of the land being covered in a great stretch of water. Mm -hmm. And that one day there was a bird with white wings that came floating down from beyond. It stopped in the middle of this lake, this body of water. Mm -hmm. And then the water went away, so the legend goes. The bird was left laying in the sands. <laughs> and then they described how the wings of the bird fell into a bare tree. They stuck up out of the sand, and the wind blew and blew until the bird was covered in sand. So Charlie was sure, as he heard this legend, that they must be talking about a ship. A white-sailed ship. Yeah. And that the tree they spoke of must be the mast. So that was really cool. Right. I, I, I like how he kind of pieced together the analogy it's, or the metaphor. I mean, it's kind. some people would say it's kind of a stretch, but it's not. And you made, you before we started recording, like you <laughs> pointed out a few key words. You bolded here. Obviously, the idea of um, came floating down from beyond. 
like down from the horizon is kind right. of how I just like exactly. not down from the sky. No, but if it's a kind of like a Fata Morgana effect or something like that, like you're looking far out in a body of water. Yeah. It's going to look like it's something it's floating. descending. It's floating. It's yeah. hovering. Exactly. Yeah. That's like what ships ocean, do. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what was the other word uh, you mentioned here? I mean, there's a few. It's, it's, it's very telling of potentially something. I think that like was the biggest ship. one. The idea of the floating. Right. Um, yes. Yeah, so this is very tantalizing, but obviously Charlie kind of had to continue on. He was in kind of hostile territory, limited uh, resources and all that. So mm-hmm. he arrived in the spring of 1848 in what would later be called Los Angeles. Yes. And it wasn't really the West that he expected. There wasn't much going on. No. <laughs> and he kind of made the decision to head to Texas because he wasn't getting anywhere. I think he had a small claim. He was trying to work it. He wasn't getting anywhere though. It was kind of like, was it already picked over at this point or was it just really, No, this was was the the very early. This was the early days. He got there expecting it to be a little bit of hustle bustle, you know, a brothel to go to if he wanted. Mm -hmm. He got there and it was basically just barren. He could have been one of the first. He could have been one of the wealthiest if he stuck around. But That's he was, unfortunate. Uh, yeah. So he heads to Texas. So he's heading back kind of southeast. Mm-hmm. And obviously this is another expanding American frontier. There's lots going on. So he kind of expects to kind of make his way there. Um, and then now... <laughs> Now that he left, that's when the gold rush really started to go off. Right. That that was kind of, I was like, wait a second. Because yeah. he goes, he comes and then he goes and yes, he comes back. <laughs> exactly. So he's sitting in Texas and he's like, crap. Yeah. Crap. I gotta get back. Yeah. So he gets going. Yeah. <laughs> this guy. So he, um, he had some early success, but it quickly ran out. Yeah. And like so many other prospectors, he was struggling. And so, yeah, he headed to Arizona in 1867 and he's he's just following the reports of gold. Pretty much. Just like so many other people. This time, he's heading west with a train of people, though. Like, it's like it's not like how it was the first time where it was just him trekking through the desert. That's right. It was just, yeah, a bunch more people. So, he is reminded of the ship right. at this point. He's kind of like, you know forgotten it because it's not really something that he can pursue he doesn't have the resources by any no. means he's just got whatever he's got on his back essentially but now he's passing through the same area once again yes so he's reminded of it i suppose i guess so and he kind of realizes that he's he's missed the boat as far as being on the first wave of these people yeah so he kind of realizes he might need to take another track Definitely. so he goes to pursue the lost ship. He go, He decides to head back. Yeah, he decides to turn around, go back to California, and revamp, yeah, this idea of the lost ship. He fell victim to what basically every prospector did, right? They have a little bit of early success, potentially, usually with panning, because it's mm-hmm. the easiest option, right? Mm-hmm. Then when you go and stake other claims, and you end up having to actually work those claims, people quickly realize that you can't just get gold out of the ground with a shovel. Yeah. and a pan. Yeah. It's way harder to get out. You have to separate it from ore. There's a whole process. There's cyanide involved. Like, it is mm. not easy to do. It's a super expensive. It often costs more to do than you get out of the ground, right? <laughs> yeah. So he decides to focus more on the ship, and there's early reports of something in the sands, and it came from this guy named Colonel Albert S. Evans, who in 1863 claimed to have seen the ship. He later published it in 1870, and this was one of the early accounts that really gets Charlie going. He sees it in a San Bernardino newspaper. And in this account from the colonel, he described two different times that he actually saw a ship, and he describes 
a, a Spanish ship. It's not a Viking ship at this time. He claims it's definitely not a Mirage, uh, nor any other type of, you know, modern day ship that could have gone up the Colorado River mm. or anything like that. Yeah. So I have a quote here. This is actually from Ancestry.com. I don't really have to read the whole thing, but he was a New Hampshire-born California journalist, this uh, Evans, Mm -hmm. serving as a correspondent for the New York Tribune, Chicago Tribune. This is into the 1870s. And anyway, let me see here. What else is interesting about this guy? Oh, he actually, I thought this was interesting how his account of the ship was published posthumously. Ah, yes, Mm -hmm. that's true. Yeah. And he he wrote a lot about just the area in general, right? Like the Sierra Marina, the San Andres Valley, and, you know, different sort of accounts of treasure hunts and legendary things in this area. So the the question I kind of had with this early one is, can his account of a ship in the Colorado desert area really be taken seriously? Like looking into a little bit more about this guy. He wrote a lot about legends, myths. Yeah, he know. did. It kind of, it, it reads as like, well, it says here, A la California was the name of his works. Right. Collective works. And it was a volume of, quote, reminiscences and anecdotal history published after his death at sea. Right. So for me, it, I think we can take it seriously because I don't think he was writing it for it to be published. I think he was literally writing it to record his experiences. Right. The fact that he passed away before. Uh, yeah, the fact yeah. that he, pu- he he died at sea, it was published posthumously, so after he died, mm-hmm. kind of makes me think that he was just trying to... It's more to, like a journal entry. Yes. He was trying to create an account of what was going on. I like that. Okay. Yeah. I can roll with that. You know, after this, though, I mean, it really caught storm. I mean, especially after Charlie began looking for it and after his first expedition looking for it. But it basically, it it was like wildfire, right? I mean, Mm. this is the type of story, especially in a place like California, New Frontier, you know, uncharted territories, like people would eat up stories like this. The promise of gold Of course. And at the same time, too, this is yellow journalism in its heyday because newspapers are competing against each other. And San Bernardino Press was a smaller newspaper at the time. But I mean, you've got articles popping up in the Los Angeles News, the Sacramento Union, the Chicago Tribune, way out on the East Coast, and the San Bernardino Guardian in October of 1870, which is another one that really gets Charlie back on the, on the search. And it even gives details as to where the ship actually was. Huh. So this one said, under 70 miles away, 40 miles north of San Bernardino, Fort Yuma Road, 30 miles west of Dos Polos. <laughs> So needless to say, I mean, this story was really beginning to spread mm-hmm. and Charlie had some sort of coordinates as to how to get there, right? So he turns his focus back to searching for the ship, or at least this is how it kind of appeared to be hmm. because some people claim he was looking for other things. Like what? Potentially just more gold. Oh, okay. Um, and that he was using the story to try to drum up some funding for himself. Oh, that's clever. Right? Was (laughs) he that clever, though? Because he had already been a total idiot and missed the boat in the 40s, went to Texas, came back because everyone else was doing it like a sheep. He Mm -hmm. was just doing the same thing as everyone else, right? So it's like, it's kind of a hard thing to believe that he would be that clever, right? You could read it both ways, I guess. It could be just sheer desperation, though. He's just like, he's, he's at the end of his rope as far as what he has for resources on his own, and so he needs the patronage of someone else. Right. Kind of. So, I mean, it's likely, but at the same time, if he really believes there's a lost ship out there, that's a hell of a lot more treasure than mining gold out of the out of the earth. you got to find it, right? Very so he heads true. back into this one of the most hostile environments on earth at the time because of this news story, and he knows all these things that can kill him. We've said it already. Violent Native American groups, spiders, snakes, wolves... 
scorpions, and most importantly, lack of water. Mm. So he's going through the Coachella Valley, finds himself kind of lost. He's losing his land markers. He's no longer on the same route as his last trip to Arizona, you know, for his gold rush several years earlier. Right. he even had a brush with what he described later as quicksand, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is an indicator of water, which is kind of interesting. I thought that was, I added that in there. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Like groundwater, obviously. It must have so been. there could yeah. That was another thing we didn't really touch on as far as like the the sources of Lake Coya. Like if it could have had like an underground spring. Some like Palm Springs is have. obviously fed by an underground spring. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's entirely possible. Yeah. <laughs> we need to get uh, Dana back on talk about Dana. some uh, yeah. some ge- geological things. Mm-hmm. So he's starting to run out of water though. Ironically, after. A brush with quicksand and an indicator of water and he heads back so he, he he can't find anything heads back to san bernardino immediately gathers together more supplies heads back out november 5th 1870 he sets out again so this time he's underprepared in the regards that he didn't bring enough food or water again he brought more he it's crazy he literally described it as like i brought more wood because because of the quicksand incident he wanted to be able to cross right. treacherous terrain so it's like man why don't you just try to like navigate around that train and bring more water like yeah. that seems like a better better idea heavy thing to bring right <laughs> anyway he presses on towards where, where he believes the ship could be right and he's following the accounts from various different newspaper reports and prospectors at this time because the story is kind of starting to spread. Mm-hmm. And he's way out in the desert. He's running low on water and he begins to find things like seashells, which we talked about already. Like yeah. people were finding them traveling across. Mm-hmm. So he knows he's got to be in the right place where the ship could have been, right? But at this point, he's so dehydrated again. He realizes he has to turn back and get re- more supplies. <laughs> oh, but so bef- frustrating. I know. It's ridiculous. But... This time, before he turns back, there's this cop, this crop of rocks. He climbs up on top of one of these really large ones, and he pulls out his telescope to take a last scan of the area to try to be like, okay, i got to find markers so I can come back. Mm-hmm. This time, something catches his attention. Was it the dehydration? Did he actually see? Hmm. He's looking through his telescope, and by his account, he can't believe his eyes because he's staring at what he describes as a 200-foot-long masted ship he can Hmm. only see a single mast at this time so indicating it's old maybe two have fallen down and it's right in the spot where ancient the ancient lake kawea would have been so he he believes he is looking way out in the distance at this spanish galleon that he's been looking for this entire time Mm -hmm. but of course he's got to turn back again of course yeah (laughs) he doesn't have it in him to continue on right so he returns, he's near death. He tells everybody, though, when he gets back, that he found the lost ship of the Mojave. Oh. So, wildfire. Wildcat. <laughs> <laughs> no, the story starts to really spread again, right? Um, and there's this uh, newspaper editor named John Talbot, and mm-hmm. he's really trying to get the San Bernardino Guardian off the ground, and he publishes this account, Lost Ship Found is the title. Of course, this is going to catch the attention of everyone. Charlie's basically a celebrity. He's going in and out of taverns, and he's, a, he's totally a local celebrity, right? Even though he has no proof. No proof. Mm -hmm. This story goes on for a little while, but I wanted to sum it up in this here. He claimed to have seen the ship, right? He was Mm -hmm. struggling to find gold. He gets John Talbot to muster together some funding, puts together a team, wagon load. He's got three months worth of water. He's got everything under the sun that he could use. They end up going on, again, a completely different route than Mm. he had taken the first time to Arizona, the second time to look for the ship, and the third time to go out again to try to find that same ship. 
Right. And ta- it's him and Talbot and probably two guides couple or something. Of crew. I yeah. can't remember. It was a couple of guides, right? Native American guides. Uh, I, I believe so. Something and like that. And then somewhere, what was it, like two weeks into the trip, Talbot's like, screw this. I got a newspaper to run and just goes back to San Bernardino. I can't remember if it was two weeks in, but yeah, essentially he turns back because he realizes that Cluster is acting strange. He's looking, he's, he's kind of being very pokey. He's like when we when we're walking Winston, my parents' dog. Yes. He's looking around, he's what, poking around rocks. What I remember him doing is basically the description from Talbot was that while he I think it was about three weeks that he traveled with Charlie. And by the end of that twenty one days, he basically said that Charlie's going in circles. He's not he'll go one direction one way and then we'll almost like do a 180 and go the other direction the next day as if he doesn't really have any idea of where he's going. So I think Talbot lost faith well, in him. That's, that's Talbot's perception. It's yeah. for sure that he, that he doesn't know where he's going mm-hmm. or that he isn't looking for a ship. Right. right? He's poking around like he's, a prospector yeah. would looking for deposits. Yeah. He's trying to find places where he could get gold. But again, the, I have issues with that. Like we can talk about this more at the end, mm-hmm. but I mean like the idea, like if that's the case, and Charlie is clever enough to come up with the idea of like, hey, people are going to eat up this story. I'm going to say I found the lost ship. People are going to fund me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go out there and look for gold. These are the worst places for you to be going to look for a gold claim. You're going to go try to find a gold claim in the middle of the most barren, hostile. How are you? He's already had the same issues getting it out of the ground in California, closer to the coast. Mm-hmm. How are you going to mine it out of the ground in the middle of the desert when you already have... Not, like no resources. How are you supposed to do that? So maybe, it's like clever on the one hand, dumb on the next. I, I can think of two reasons. Maybe like you could think it's so crowded out there in California that there's no room for more. Like so, he's like, True. I'm gonna go a different way, see what True. I can find. Maybe he was looking for like obviously gold was the thing to look for. Maybe he's looking for other things though, like other minerals or things like that too. But I'm thinking. Would would water make mining harder or easier? I don't know the answer to that. Like, if if you're in desert versus in Californian conditions where you're mining in a creek, you know, like, is that harder? Well, I'm not even talking it... about the difficulty in mining. I'm talking about either your ability to actually be to there, be there mining. and survive. You'd and... have to be, keep going back and forth and back and forth. And if True. it wasn't expensive enough already where you have water, like, yeah. there in town... You have to cart it all the way out there and then do all the same techniques to get it out of the ground. Very true. I guess, yeah, it's kind of... So I think he was looking for hmm. a ship, is what I'm trying to get at here. You're thinking I yeah, think so he you're... genuinely believed he saw something and that him poking around was maybe... He, maybe he was getting lost and he was trying to remember things and mm-hmm. a little dehydrated and maybe at this point, third expedition, getting a little crazy. Yeah, like a little this, confused. This is, I mean, think about it. He can't, He started to head west in the 1840s. This is now the 1870s. This is, this is almost 30 plus. years later and he was already in his 30s probably, like late 20s when to he 30s started. when he started west. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not old, but this is the 1800s. <laughs> that's kind of getting up there if you're going out into the... Colorado so desert, right? you're just trying to make something work over and over again, even though it just reminds me of Chris and the apple solids. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's, that's an, an inside joke. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> Some people listening might get that reference, but yeah, no, I mean, but like, I think he was going for, going for gold. I mean, really, he was like, this is my last chance. I mean, a treasure ship, you don't have to mine it out of the ground. You don't have to dig it out, but it's there. It's ready mm-hmm. to go. So I think he was really looking for a ship. Okay. So the question is, was there... Or was there not a real 
ship in the desert That's that right. Charlie saw. And we've got some other accounts and potential proof. But before we get right into that, we wanted to take our first promo break in quite a while. Mm-hmm. And we actually have a little bit of news that we didn't uh, say off the top of the show, but we wanted to let you guys know that we've actually gone ahead and started our very own podcast network. Yeah. It's called Straight Up Strange Productions. Mm-hmm. It's going to be focused on myths, legends, history, true crime, audio drama, science, uh, unsolved mysteries, and all kinds of cool stuff. Exactly. Um, yeah, so we kind of briefly introduced this uh, on our film Friday just a couple days ago. Yeah. But we're doing a soft launch. We're rolling it out. We've got about six or seven shows on board right now, which is really exciting, and a few more that we're uh, in communications with. And so, yeah, look forward to this. Um, we're going we're gonna to be doing all sorts of fun stuff. So uh, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're going to have a fun forum with lots of content and fun stuff Definitely. for you guys to... Um, take a look at mm-hmm. and yeah there's so much so much I'm, oh I'm really excited it's hard to even list it off because we have a ton <laughs> of cool stuff in the work like there's going to be episode collaborations we're gonna have a shop up there eventually we're gonna have a really cool blog lots of cool stuff exactly and uh, one of the shows in the network is none other than folklore on the rocks mm-hmm. so we're just going to take a sec yeah, folklore. Um, I love these two. Obviously, yes. another like male female host team, which is really cool. Bo- booze fueled. They've always got fun cocktails featured, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, let's give them a listen. Hi there, I'm Logan. And I'm Lindsay. And we host the new podcast, Folklore on the Rocks, where we talk about folklore and lesser known creatures, cryptids, and monsters from around the world. When we say lesser known, we mainly mean that we won't be covering creatures like Bigfoot or Nessie or Chupacabra just because they're discussed so often and the world just has so many other awesome options to draw from. Every two weeks, we'll be diving deep into the legends and culture that surround a specific creature and getting a bit tipsy as we do so. But don't worry, we do our research sober. (laughs) On the weeks in between, we'll be narrating and discussing folktales. So some will be historical folklore from the regions that our creatures are from. And some will be more like modern folklore, like no sleeps and creepypastas. You can find out more about us on our website, FolkloreOnTheRocks.com, on Facebook and Instagram at FolkloreOnTheRocks, and Twitter at at FolkloreRocks. So come on, grab a drink, join us, and let's dig deep together. All right, yeah, so make sure you guys go check out Folklore on the Rocks. They're Awesome. Super fun. Let's get into some accounts of ships, uh, different types of ships that could have potentially found their way into the Mojave Desert um, in ancient times, in more modern times, medieval times, all that kind of stuff. Definitely. (laughs) The main question here is what exactly did people like Charlie see? Because we have all these accounts from like the 1800s newspapers that are making these, all these types of claims. So... What type of ship was it or is it? Could it have been potentially? Mm -hmm. If we are to believe that um, it may still be out there buried beneath the sands, could it have been the Spanish galleon? Is that too modern? Is the Viking longboat fit that narrative? Is the Chinese junk more appropriate? You know, there's lots of options here. We did mention um, the evidence of, well, it's debatable, right? Those uh, anchor stones that are present off the coast of Oregon and California yes. and Washington, that sort of uh, west coast. And those ones were 
I can't remember, I can't remember. Those were Chinese. Chinese. Chinese they right? would have been Chinese, but at the same time, it is kind of contested because of the fact that some of these are naturally formed. Right. So. Right. But yeah, no. There's there's all sorts of um, different lines of thought that we can go down. But okay, let's 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 start with the Spanish galleon because I think that's probably the most um, most likely, likely. probably. Mm-hmm. And it is known that the first Europeans to this region, so going around the tip of South America all the way back up the other side on the Pacific and ending up in the Californian area. There's that peninsula there. Mm-hmm. Um, and these these Spanish explorers, uh, the first of which were led by Melchior Diaz in 1540. Yes. Uh, he traveled upriver from the Californian Gulf, and then he actually sent expeditions overland by foot to Lake Cahuilla. Right. Which was actually, I guess, it was around then so, in the 1500s. <laughs> but at this time, obviously, it did. The estuaries are gone. Like yes. the, it's not as big of a body of water. So you could almost call it. It would have been closer to just the Salton Sea at this yes. point. Okay. And so, why would he have done this? Like, what was the main reasoning for these Spanish uh, ships and uh, captains, all these things, to sail inland? Right. Why? Because they were enticed by the idea they could find a water route inland for trade and potentially even find a way to get across the North American continent. Like basically, yeah, cut their trips ridiculously, like short. Exactly. Not have to round the whole southern tip Mm -hmm. of South America, which, again, that's why we have the Panama Canal today. That's right. Anyways, yeah, early maps actually indicated that both the Spanish and Portuguese were under the impression that California could be an island. Yeah. And uh, the Baja Peninsula that I just mentioned um, greatly contributed to this understanding because they're rounding it as if it's like another uh, another chunk of land, right? Like the tip of an could... island. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Makes I just, sense. I love the analogy. Okay. A lot of people can relate to this. When you're in a canoe or a kayak and you're going along the lake shore and you can't see what's around the next bend mm-hmm. and you don't ever know and you're just always constantly imagining what could be there <laughs> yeah. and then you get around and you're like okay and now there's the next horizon I get around <laughs> that bend and you just keep going and like yeah. I could just anyways the, the spirit of exploration <laughs> totally. but anyways um <clears throat> it is known that um so we've talked about Lake Cahuilla we've talked about the idea that it was this inland sea but there's also the idea that the waters coming from the Colorado flooding this area could have basically maybe formed connections to the sea. Right. Like we, talk, like we mentioned, like these estuaries, yes. right? Exactly. So could a smaller Spanish vessel have traveled inland about this time or... It's or a very have... curious idea. <laughs> because these are massive ships, right? Like this is the main reason people doubt it. They're big ships. They're, they're three-masted galleons. Mm-hmm. But you never know. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like there there is accounts from explorers around that, like even in uh, 1774 here, there was this like, reporter, reporter, explorer, <laughs> reporter, explorer. Hey, explorers were reporters. They were. They Exactly. They were the first line of whatever information. But this guy, uh, Juan Batista de Anza, he um, he commented how Lake Hoya was dry again by right. this date. So right. 1774. So no more lake. So within hmm. a period of, so, okay, so when did we start here? This was in the 1500s, so 1540. So years. So literally 200 years. That's pretty, pretty bizarre, mm-hmm. really, to think. It's such yeah. a massive body of water. I mean, at that time in the 1500s, it would have been smaller. There's no estuaries to the ocean. Just to think of how massive it could have been. And even myths, right? Exactly. And even if you had, like, say, 
a spring or two where you get higher than average temperatures and you get more glacial floodwater melt that would have resulted in a bigger expansion of Lake Kauia. Yeah. And there, oh, sorry, that's, yeah, it's all hypothetical, but it's, it's, hypothetical. it's all very interesting to think about. Definitely. There's another reference that's that adds to all of this as well, and it's uh, it comes out of a book by this guy named Antonio de Fierro Blanco, and the book's called The Journey of the Flame, and it was all about Spanish, um, you know, coastal exploration, essentially, and this guy specifically, you know, about this guy named Juan de... What's his name? Is it Day or Del? Juan de Iturbe. So one of the early Spanish explorers, right? Mm-hmm. And he was in charge of a various, like a bunch of different ships, but he's, he was the captain of one, a massive 50-ton, allegedly pearl-laden galleon mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, basically was traveling up the Pacific coast and ended up going through a natural channel into the Salton Sea. And this happened sometime around the year 1615. So... This is a quote from a, uh, a blog called Tales of the Desert, but I believe it is an ex- excerpt from the actual book. But a captain by the name of Juan de Iturbe uh, has just enjoyed a lucrative bartering mission along the western coast of what is now Mexico. For explorers of the day, finding a secret passageway to and from the Atlantic, from the Pacific, was kind of like the main goal, right? This mm-hmm. represented an enticing challenge, as it reads here. <laughs> the ship sailed north into the Gulf of California through a narrow mountainous strait, then into a vast inland sea. His crew sailed around the sea, but found no further waterway to the east. Mm. But the, so they were trapped. I, but the, exactly, but the accounts are that they made it in there. So, did did is this true? Did he actually make it into what would have been presumably Lake Hoia, this in the Salton Basin, right? According to the same book, there's information obtained from a mule driver named, this is a tough one, Tiburquio. Uh, Tiburquio Manquerna. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> who had accompanied um, the famous Juan Bautista de Anza, who you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So this is this is significantly later on. But they had the heard of these stories, right? So this is another, yeah. So he was another Spanish-born explorer, and he was tasked with colonizing the Alta California and other areas and these types of places, right? Mm-hmm. And he was searching for this same land route from Sonora to Alta California and other potential waterways, inland waterways and stuff. But as, anyway, this following claim came from this uh, mule driver who was a part of this. They knew this story of De Eterbe from the 1500s, who allegedly sailed up this vast, in, into this vast inland sea. They knew of the accounts that Eterbe had spent about a month aground on a sandbar after being essentially trapped in this inland sea, right? Okay. Um, when a great cloud burst rushing down from the high mountains filled, again, this part of this inland sea with water and debris, mm. creating such vast waves that the vessel became unmanageable because it's a large galleon, but now on a small... It's rocking. It's rocking on mm. a smaller body of water because they were left high and dry. And now and it's, it's being essentially crashed. I mean, well, a, like, a ship crashing is what I'm picturing here. It's it's a teeter-totter effect, right? Because yeah. if it's if it's rocking on a sandbar, it's it's kind of already yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Then, <laughs> no one saw that, but Andrew's just like making the rocking motion as if boop and there and you go it, capsize. Right. Capsize, <laughs> smash over, right? But he did manage to kind of kind of try to get out of the sandbar. This is, I, I, I'm, presumably this is bef- just before this happens, right? They try to get out of the sandbar through any sort of natural channel, but this, again, this sort of storm or water surge 
there's multiple different stories, right? Yeah. Some say a mudslide took out the ship. Okay. Some say uh, it just simply blocked their escape and then they oh, were left yeah. high and dry. And then this version that we were just talking about a second ago could have happened after that. So the ship's actually wrecked by water refilling it later on. Okay. After it was already left high and dry and essentially abandoned. It mm. would have had to have been abandoned. Yeah, right? exactly. So, yeah, I mean, but... That's interesting. Like, yeah, the idea that obviously if you do get an in influx of water it is going to be filled with a lot of things right because even like well everyone knows but like when you get like a flash flood in the desert right like it's very violent there's a lot of debris and stuff and it's 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 quite dangerous yeah you don't want to get caught in one of those little um, those dry little runs where that fill with water when these types of events occur no yeah no. so i can see it being quite violent and very uh yeah definitely This is a really interesting quote that kind of adds to all of this. This came, again, from Lost Ship of the Desert, an interesting blog, but this is uh, from the Mule Driver. Direct quote, I was sent to the right of course, seeking a road to the ocean, traveling by night because of the heat. I stumbled upon an ancient ship, and in its hold were so many pearls as is beyond imagination. (laughs) Fevered by this wealth, I took what I could carry, abandoned my comrades, and riding toward the ocean as far as my mule could carry me. I climbed the precarious western mountains on foot, fed by Indians. I at last reached the San Luis Rey mission. Since then, I've spent my life searching once again for the ship. Hmm. While in camp of Don Furman Sahudo, a Spanish ex- explorer, the mule driver whispered the story to Juan Colorado, who finally revealed the secret allegedly, on his 104th birthday, as the story goes. So this mule driver who was a part of these later expeditions claimed to have found this, the ship of Juan Iturbe, de Iturbe, right? Mm-hmm. Sticking out of the sand, grabs a few pearls, and this is kind of the how a lot of these stories go. People yeah. find it, they take what they can carry, but they can never get back to it. Nobody no. can ever find it a second time. So this is yeah. going to come into our theories section. It's like, are we dealing with a ghost ship here? What is going on here? Or is it simply the fact that the landscape is changing so rapidly that people can't keep track of it, right? Kind of like, like the lost army of Cambyses or something, the shifting yeah. sands. Unless you had like a literal exact GPS point, <sighs> yeah. you know, which none of them had <laughs> in the day. So It would be quite difficult. <sighs> So could Charlie Cluster have been seeing these same ships that we're mentioning here? And then, of course, that was in the 1870s. There's more in in 1892, another uh, claim of finding the ship in 1907. Finding it but not being able to go back. Exactly. And then we get into something a little different than the Spanish Galleon. Well, this would be earlier, and this goes back to the Viking era, and stories originating around 1900s from um, the Mexicans and Indians who are working in and living in the Colorado River Delta region. Mm -hmm. One of the most uh, prominent stories involves a tale of finding a Viking ship in around 1933. Yeah. And this was from a lady uh, by the name of Myrtle Botts. <laughs> Myrtle. <laughs> Myrtle. Myrtle. I love that name. Botts of all things. Like, Birdie Botts is every flavor of beans. <laughs> it almost sounds like a made-up name. It kind of does, and I'm going to get into some of my thoughts about this story after. But sure. Let's give this, let's just tell it. So, she, this Myrtle Botts was traveling with her husband, and I'm assuming this was vacation, it's not like this isn't the pioneer days. <laughs> any means but 1933 pretty early still dust bowl era and uh, they were essentially enjoying the famous wildflower bloom in what is now known as anza borrego state park in the colorado desert this is inland and it is in southern california Mm -hmm. so 
same neck of the woods as Charlie Cluster. Exactly. Here in the park, they actually met with an old prospector who began telling them stories of the region, including a claim that he had seen, seen, so he himself had seen something entirely out of place in the desert. He swore, and mind you, this is an old prospector that is unnamed in the story, he swore that he had seen the remains of a Viking longship sticking out of the sides of an aero. Uh, an aero is actually um, a dry creek. We we just referenced it above when we were yes. talking about these um, these rapid like flash floods that could occur. These would essentially be the areas in which these rivers would travel through. Yeah. So an aero, also called a wash, is a stream bed or gulch that is temporarily or seasonally filled with flows of water after sufficient rains kind of come about. So, okay, this prospector claims to have seen a Viking longship coming out of the sides of one of these washes. So he said that it was well enough preserved that the distinctive round shields were still mounted along its sides. Crazy. Which is incredible. And if it's in this wash area, the dry creek, that kind of, like for me, I'm like, okay, you could get lots of preservation because of the dry conditions of the desert. No problem. Mm -hmm. If it's in an arrow or a wash, then it's going to be subject to periods of flooding and water. So there's going to be water damage is going to be, you know, decay from that. But again, mm-hmm. right, if these are super temporary and they dry out really fast, then you might not get that erosion. Or it may have not even been there all the time. It has sort of oh, worked it its way down. into that and it's only been in this dry creek bed for Very a true. shorter period That's of time. That's a good, good, good way to think about it too, yeah. Okay, so according to Myrtle, this prospector wrote directions for her on how to find the ship. And this piece of paper with the original directions is actually preserved to this day at the Julian Pioneer Museum of Julian, California. We've got to go check it out. So if anyone's in and around the Julian area of California, please go check out the al- The alleged original directions. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty very cool. cool. Um, I would imagine that they're irrelevant now. <laughs> Yeah, you're probably, like, just walking into somebody's backyard now or something. I don't know. I wonder. Yeah. Oh my God. It's just, like, yeah, like a subdivision or something. Hey, maybe maybe the lost ship is in your backyard. You maybe. never know. You never know. So the story goes that Myrtle actually found the ship. She followed the directions, and she found it. And it was exactly like how he claimed. So I would imagine all the same details. And Myrtle was obviously super excited. She went and got her husband to see this amazing find but (laughs) before they could get there the story goes that an earthquake brought down the wall of the aero or the wash so like the wall of the stream yeah and uh (laughs) the access was blocked so they were unable to see any of the evidence and supposedly the ship has not been seen since Hmm. erosion in the arrow has since washed away whatever directions may have once led to whatever could have been there so it's just kind of irrelevant now and this whole myrtle bot story is up for debate so it is quite modern right like 1933 yeah and it it does match i mean we could like if we really wanted to we could just list accounts but there were earlier viking ship accounts okay people saying it wasn't the first not not necessarily people saying i saw a viking ship but people saying i saw a ship and then the way they describe it is not single masted right or or like holes where oars would be, right. you know, longer, like not a Spanish ship at mm-hmm. all, or a Chinese junk or any other type of ship. Okay. Like so again, right, like this does kind of read as like a bit of like a, a early American folklore tale. Because <laughs> of the earthquake. 
Yeah, and it reminded me instantly of when we were back to our Noah's Ark series when we had that guy, I forget his name now, but he claimed essentially him and his buddy scaled <laughs> scaled the mountain, found a, a little hole, and they essentially crawled into the hall of Noah's Ark, and yeah. they saw all the mangers and the pens for animals and everything, and then... And then disaster strikes, and and a, what was it? An avalanche? Yeah, an avalanche. it was an avalanche occurred and wiped away all the evidence, including the camera. And one of them died, didn't and, it? And well, yeah. his partner supposedly died. Right. But then it was found out that he had never even been to Turkey. That guy. So mm. hmm. kind of need to go to Turkey to uh, do excavations in Turkey. It's kind of uh, <laughs> kind of a key thing. But. So yeah, just getting back to the whole idea of a Viking ship, though, like. How could a Viking ship have ended up in the deserts of the American Southwest? It's definitely, uh, there's really no evidence for it other than oral tradition and people claiming to have found these ships. We do know, of course, that like Vikings made attempts to colonize North America, right? Mm -hmm. Along the East Coast, their settlements in Canada on the East Coast. We know they were in Greenland. We know that they probably went as far south as potentially even, like, the Carolinas on the East Coast. Oh, yeah, actually. Um, just mm-hmm. without colonizing them. Yeah. Um, and so, potentially, like, I'm thinking if they were in Greenland, if they were in the East, they could have made their way through the Arctic regions of Canada. Potentially. And then around the other way, instead of going south through the tip of South America, you're going... You know, like that's equally plausible in my opinion. I think but. so. I mean, people think they've never ventured anywhere beyond, anywhere near, the, or sorry, anywhere near the Pacific Ocean, like beyond the Atlantic, as far as we know. But there are stories that talk about blonde Eskimos. Don't really want to hmm. use that word, but I mean, this is just direct line from like <laughs> historical quote. accounts, right, of this, like generally thought to be potentially descend, descendants of, you know, Vikings and or of Aryans. indigenous people. or. Yeah. Of course, there have been DNA tests done yeah. in modern times, and there is there's no links being found. No, no. Mm-hmm. Um, and and these tests are pretty detailed, right? So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm kind of throwing that one out the window. But well, can't you get like uh, what's it called when you're completely blonde and you're like, oh my gosh, when you're albino? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> so I guess there could have been cases like that, and people oh. are like, oh, it must be a Viking. How but freaky would that have been? That would have been like a scene out of Thirty Days of Night. A, a blonde Eskimo with like red eyes. Like, yeah. Could you imagine seeing that? That would be creepy. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's really random. That is super random. I, I apologize to any um, <laughs> northerners that are. <laughs> oh, Amber. Oh, we're just offending everyone left, right, and center here. Yeah, no, but like you just mentioned though, like if they were. We, you know, we can hypothesize that. Like, if they were kind of traveling across the north coast, maybe they could have kind of gone through the Bering Strait and eventually reached down, you know, towards Mexico and along the west coast. Mm-hmm. There there are a bunch of different articles talking about, you know, one route into the desert, right, via the Colorado River. The Colorado River is much better suited for a Viking longboat than a Spanish galleon to travel mm-hmm. into That's it. That's true. Right? As far as size goes. And... Vikings are hardcore people, man. They could have made it through that northern passage across northern, what is now northern California, or California, northern Canada, mm-hmm. and down the Pacific coast yeah. if they wanted to. I would imagine so. Um, yeah, I mean, but this is like, right, feeding into, okay, so the Colorado River, which feeds into the Gulf of California, also known as the Sea of Cortez. Mm-hmm. Historically, this was largely, you know, this was very navigable, right? People could travel this. Mm-hmm. Shallow boats, for the most part. Mm-hmm. And it definitely would have been possible for a Viking 
tight boat to make it up there. How there, tantalizing would that have been, right? To see such large openings going inland, right? You're like, where is that going? Yeah. Such a massive river. And then especially if you make it to like a Lake Kauia, mm-hmm. you're thinking... Imagine if there was just a, you, if people believed there was just a series of those lakes. So it's like you make it to one, you travel further inland to the next one. Imagine having that completely across the entire continent. <laughs> you could go from the Atlantic to, just like Atlantic to the Pacific. Oh, mm-hmm. That would be so cool. That would be. There is some evidence to potentially support this, if you want to call it evidence, up mm-hmm. for debate. <laughs> In 1939, there was a book published by this guy named Dane uh, Coolidge. Called really? the last, uh, the last of the Seris, which is devoted to um, a specific Native American group, the Seris people, who lived around the Gulf of California, and he relates a legend that they spoke of that they talked about strange whalers who cooked who cooked whale meat in enormous iron pots and then hmm. drank the oil, and they were blonde. That came from a farmen. That's right. interesting. So that's kind of odd. Another part of their oral history speaks of red-haired giants that lived on this island in the Sea of Cortez. Interesting. They were very aggressive, as the legends say, but the Seri were also aggressive themselves, so they didn't really exchange with them. Yeah, but the Seri were really kind of hard to corral by the Spanish, so they're basically like almost completely eradicated. These are just oral tradition stories, but they're talking about... I mean, I don't even know. Like, this is almost akin to... I don't even know. It reminds me of some weird reason of, like, in a, in UFOlogy and the description of, like, the blonde, blue-eyed, like, tall aliens yeah, or whatever. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, Norse-looking. Like, are these Norsemen being described that have visited Mexico and the West, the Pacific Coast? What that, do you they, think of that? That certainly sounds like it. Like, the first quote there about the enormous iron pots eating, cooking whale meat, eating it. Like that, to me, the cooking part differentiates from Inuit, right? Mm-hmm. And and their practices of eating raw and frozen meats and all that kind of stuff. Definitely. They didn't really cook it. No. Uh, this sounds very Viking-esque to be using iron pots, drinking the oil, like, you know, like all the fattiness and, and the cooking the meat. I don't mm-hmm. know. I'm not an expert by any means, but that does sound... It's interesting. Definitely yeah. doesn't sound like the Spanish. That's no. for sure. These tradi- and of course, these stories are much, much older. The Spanish wouldn't even know how to catch a whale. <laughs> they wouldn't even be aware. No, no. There are some other bits of proof too, potentially. Um, there's this really interesting petroglyph of a single-masted ship. This is kind of getting back towards Spanish galleon ideas. But if you were to draw a line from Tiburon Island up Death Valley towards where Myrtle Bot's story kind of took place, mm-hmm. this this rock is really, really close because there's a petroglyph here. Oh, um, okay. And it's bizarre. It depicts two ships with tall single masts, one of them even depicting oars coming out of it. Wow. The Spanish galleons didn't really have noticeable oars or anything like that, so that kind mm-hmm. of leans more Viking. Mm-hmm. It's hard to distinguish between whether it's a galleon or a Viking longboat, but these, they, they've been definitively, they, it's not graffiti. These are old. These are dating around 500 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not Viking era, but is it a re, is it, is it a later artistic depiction of like an oral story or something? Or is this of, of a Spanish ship? So this has been verified by science from San Diego state. So it's, you know, four or 500 years old, roughly. Mm-hmm. Could this be an account of the early San Salvador, one of the first Spanish ships on the coast of California? Or could this have been from one of the ones traveling inland? I don't know. 
Hmm. So wait a second. This this specific petroglyph mm-hmm. is in the Coyote Mountains, or yeah, it says in the Coyote Mountains. There's that large boulder. So yeah. where? How far inland is the Coyote Mountains? It's a decent ways inland. Like you want to pull it up? Yeah, I'm just gonna take a quick peek here. Yeah, for sure. Find that. It's a small mountain range in San Diego Imperial County. Is so okay. It's hmm. Let me see if I can get it in maps here. Yeah, for sure. That's really interesting, though. If it's if it is that, if it is inland and not coastal, then that definitely is more. And interesting. even if we're just looking back five hundred years. Oh yeah, it's really far inland. That's is yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. It's actually um, more than halfway from the coast to the Salton Sea. Um, right wow. There. So, so that's a right, long people. ways. You can't really be. Uh, witnessing ships from that distance no and uh that's like that's 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 clearly i mean i'm leaning galleon obviously like this is a masted ship they kind of look like spanish galleons that's a big ship and if it made it as far as that to pe- for people to be recording like that nowhere <laughs> so bizarre right very cool it's right by the anza borrego uh, desert state park it's at the southern tip of that yeah so that's pretty far inland i'm not gonna say that's coastal <laughs> <laughs> yeah no definitely not so once again i mean why that's would anyone draw that why I, would that be exactly. etched in there four to five hundred years old yeah so the timeline does kind of closely match up with uh the um the Spanish era. Yeah, definitely. Exploration. We do have another fun little story here. This is the story of Elmer Carver, and it comes about in the later half of the 1900s, so 1964. And um, it says, this is kind of how it goes. It says, in the early 1900s, so the story came out in 1964, but the actual story takes place in the early 1900s. Yeah, 1906-ish. Yes, and it was this man, Elmer Carver. I like that name, Elmer Carver. Hey, Elmer. He was trying to make a living as a uh, sort of a jack of all trades and traveled from town to town, kind of making his way. Sometime in 1906, um, Elmer began work at a mine, and this was near the town of Laguna on the Arizona side of the Colorado River. He was working there for about a couple weeks, but he wasn't really making enough, so he decided to head with some other workers towards Yuma, Arizona, and then on to California, where there was (laughs) more opportunity, Mm -hmm. you know, grass is always greener somewhere else. And he actually met up with a man named Nels Jacobson, a local hog rancher, and ended up working ranching with him for Mm -hmm. quite a while. And one evening, this is a quote here, one evening Elmer was exchanging stories with Miss Jacobson, Nell's wife, after he left on some business. She mentioned why her husband went to Los Angeles, <laughs> that he had gone to sell gems he had found in the desert. Mrs. Jacobson went, went to the bedroom and returned a few minutes later. In her hand was a small box, um, and then when she opened it, on the top of the black cloth were three small diamonds, an emerald, and a huge blood red ruby. So Mrs. Jacobson revealed that these gems had come from a ship located right behind their house. <laughs> so the next morning, Elmer went out to see for himself, and about 200 feet behind the house, he saw the bow of the ship. He described it standing about six feet high off the ground and then about 50 to 60 feet away from the tip of the bow there was the stern coming out of the sand about four feet high Hmm. so it's about a 50 to 60 foot long ship interesting um and then it says here uh, through the years most people have believed that the ship was most likely either spanish or english 
due to all the activity of the 16th, 17th centuries. So, um, yeah. I yeah. thought that was really, really interesting, too. So, again, right, like... <laughs> I mean, that seems likely, 16th, 17th centuries, but yeah. the, the length of it sounds kind of Viking. Like, to go back to kind of the Myrtle Botts-esque story. Yeah? Was that kind of roughly the size of the Spanish Galleon? Because Well, no, no, no. Yeah. Like, 60 feet isn't very long, right? Like... It's... That's not, yeah. Yeah, that's more... Sorry, more, sorry, did I say Spanish or Viking? <laughs> <laughs> you said Spanish, but, I mean, like, to think about a longboat, like, 50, 60 feet isn't isn't super, super long. And, of no. course, I'm always using, like, a 10-foot-high basketball hoop as a reference. Like, that's, you know, it's not it's not, it's not super-duper long. Very but. true, very true. Like, the average, like, Spanish galleon... Let's see here. Average Spanish galleon size... Let's see. ...would be... Well, yeah, about double that, so 160 feet. There you go. Mm -hmm. Again, though, the location has remained a mystery because the ship is no longer in this area that he had described originally. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether you believe the story or not, whether it was raided and taken away or whether or not this is this, it's the same case. It can never be found a second time, even if it is right behind the house. Oh, oh, teacher, teacher, me, me. Yes, you, you, you. (laughs) I just had this thought. I was like, well, even if, yeah, say like this guy did see this stern and this bow and whatever, what if we get um, some opportunists come? around and use it for firewood <laughs> well i mean in the, absolutely. in the cold desert night right? totally there was the same thing with the uh with the the lost ark the mm-hmm. idea that it would be still there it's like no people would have used it yeah. and if they got stranded even the ones on noah's ark they would have used it to build their houses and ships and things unless of course there was some sort of strange circumstances leading to its preservation the same goes like for noah's ark mm-hmm. and these lost ships in the desert here and i say strange preservation because it would have to be, because the, the likely option is that, I mean, I'm going back to our Noah's Ark episodes and stuff like this, but <laughs> yeah. the likely option is that it would not be there, right? It would be used right away by the people who were on it and or the immediate yeah. population in the area within the survive. decades after, mm-hmm. right? Or it would be in a space that it's completely eroded away. Either by the weather or rocks, like rock slides, anything. Periodic flooding. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Unless there's some sort of weird circumstance. I don't know exactly what that would be, but it might be like, you know, the ship ends up in just the right spot in Lake Kauia. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, 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 you know, near some sort of a highland area or whatever, and ends up in some sort of a crevice that's really dry and really, really well, like perfect for preservation, right? Yeah, yeah. We could even go back to the original legend, right, that was told by the Koea people because they kind of, they kind of describe how it did kind of erode away Mm -hmm. and how essentially it was blown over. Like the way it goes is that the wings fell into the bare sand. So that's the sails, presumably. Then sticking up out of the sand, the wind blew and blew. So harsh winds. And then uh, the bird was covered in sand. So essentially it is just Mm -hmm. washed away into the landscape. Right. Um, So if you think about it like that, then I know that... The most powerful erosional source of like anything like force, I guess you could call it, on mm-hmm. Earth is water. Of course. Next to that is wind, and wind is different though because it doesn't 
unless you have like a massive dust storm, it's usually confined to about the first foot or two off the ground, right. which is why you get in the desert landscapes, like exactly in the area we're talking about today, you get those really interesting rock features and formations where you get yeah. like the really narrow base and then the the sort of balloon shaped rock right. that yeah. kind of is just like, well, how does that happen? It's wind erosion right. and it's okay. the small particulates. So you could imagine how that would erode away something like wood over time, especially the sales part. Oh yeah. So if we go back to that original kind of story, then it, it isn't hard to think that it would have eroded away. That makes me picture like literally like a ship cut in half, like perfectly cut in half. You know what I mean? So it literally would be like just the bottom half of the hull preserved, or, like beneath the sand. Everything else yeah. like eroded away from the wind. Oh yeah, exactly. Or even it's just cut down again and again and again over time. And as the bottom starts to erode, the, the, the you know it just starts dropping, dropping, dropping. Right. And then, you yeah. Know, so I mean, until really, I know I'm. All the skeptics are like, okay, Coachella Music Festival, Palm Springs, totally populated. You know, everyone traveling through, uh, going to Death Valley for, you know, fun excursions and things like that with like your motorbikes and stuff like that, right? Like dirt (laughs) bikes and things. Mm -hmm. There still has not been fully extensive like LIDAR search. I need that to happen. For (laughs) any remnants of a ship. Yeah. Is there a fully intact ship with three (gasps) masts sticking up? Probably not. Hey, Andrew, you know who we know who who would have maybe Mm -hmm. some resources is... (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. (laughs) And Mr. Elkins. That's right. Mm -hmm. We should definitely reach out to him. And you know what? He's super interested in a lot of this stuff, too. Obviously, anything lost treasure related, but also, like, pre-Columbian contact. He Mm -hmm. reached out to us after our interview and was like, I'm really into this stuff. So, he'd be, yeah, we should definitely reach out to him. We should try. (laughs) For sure. Uh, Do you want to get into some other theories? Yeah. Possibilities, maybe, is a better way of phrasing it. Yeah, I like that phrasing. Mm -hmm. And there's some pretty wild ideas out there and not i mean obviously we're we've been talking about a lot of crazy things already the premise of a ship (laughs) laden with treasures still to be found in the desert i mean honestly stranger things have happened right and uh i just met fingers crossed i want it to be real so Mm -hmm. bad i want to go find it but there's some crazy ideas out there one of them if you don't think vikings is crazy some people do think that potentially king solomon's treasure ships (laughs) and i pause there for dramatic (laughs) effect (laughs) Could have made it as far as North America on the Pacific side. What? And, How? And, and tried to stash this treasure. That seems like a very cumbersome place to stash the treasure of King Solomon, who's residing what? in modern day Stash Jerusalem. or do essentially what we've already talked about with the sort of Portuguese and uh, uh, Spanish ships, right? Where they just happen to be in and around that area when there was a period of high flooding Mm -hmm. and then again right dried up and left them high and dry literally yeah literally high and dry so if we're talking king solomon we're talking approximately it could have been before this but the the last sort of range would be 1250 bc correct correct is that because that's about the end of the bronze age and yeah, that's right in the air. Is it? Or is yeah. it even after that? I was kind of just referencing our Sea People's episode. Hmm. I mean, one. definitely in the ballpark Actually, for sure. I think it was after. King Solomon, didn't he come after? Anyways. <laughs> very shortly. Very, this very is how long after. I retain information. Yeah. Oh, long. man. Well, we're on to the next one, on to the next one, on to the next one, right? But always, it, always. No, but the idea is interesting in the sense that, like, you know, we do have things like, you know, the Oak Island Money Pit on the east coast of Canada, but mm-hmm. still uh, mm-hmm. transoceanic contact 
you know, story where mm-hmm. there's things like, you know, people believe maybe the Holy Grail, maybe the Lost Ark of the Covenant, maybe things like that are stashed there. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely kind of a link to the idea that a treasure ship from a King Solomon-like character from this era could mm-hmm. have maybe, maybe. happened. Kind of crazy. There's another guy who we've talked about before, <laughs> the legendary Zhang He. So the Zheng Chinese he. explorer, um, the famous Chinese junks, uh, really cool ships, mm-hmm. massive. And, of course, these were treasure ships for Zhang He. He was bringing back all kinds of, like, exotic animals mm-hmm. and things like that. There's no evidence that he made it all the way, but you've already mentioned earlier in this episode, like, yeah. the anchors on the on the West Coast. The very anchors? Li- very likely Chinese. That are debated, but at the same time, if you look at a Chinese junk, it... Well, you can make the argument either way, but they're beautiful. They're a lot more artistic. They're almost like origami. They're ornate. And they look like swans. (laughs) So I could see the, you know, the legend, the original legend again, kind of fitting that style of boat. Um, Not to say, you know, like... Has to be that it could easily have been Spanish. It could have been a lot of other things. It could have been Viking. Honestly, they though, all like, fit. Galleons but, look similar, though. But it looks beautiful. Like, do you just look at it? Are you anyway? looking at it right now? I'm I mean, I'm not at looking it. at your screen, but you're looking I at am. it. And I'm looking at you, looking at it, and I'm like, damn. <laughs> I'm pretty impressed. Maybe we should make a perfume. The Chinese chunk. It's making me want to take up the art. New of fragrance origami. by Calvin Klein. Mm. I know. I'm not so sure it'll do so well. Do we say when about Zhang He was in this neighborhood? It was like right before Columbus, correct? Well, <laughs> in the neighborhood, if you believe he before. made it to that neighborhood. Before. But yes, he was yeah. before Columbus. He was uh, definitely around the coast of Africa. Um, and we talked about it in our, you know, transoceanic episode. Mm-hmm. Very likely could have made it across. Definitely had the capability. Mm-hmm. The other crazy idea is the lost tribes <clears throat> of Israel. Well, is it so crazy? Well, Ever since Noah's Ark, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, ever since we st- ever since Noah's Ark, more like ever since we started this show, like anything is anything is possible, really. If Saint Brendan made it, <laughs> and people and Saint Brendan made it, I'm telling you guys right now. It's if you haven't like listened it. to that episode, go back and listen. And there was a guy that totally recreated that and floated over on a raft, and he did it. What was the name of that episode again? It uh, was, um, ooh, the Irish Connection. Um, yeah, something. What was it? Tra- was it called just? Like anyway, go back and look, people. You can find it. But yeah. somebody recreated it and did it. So, mm-hmm. again, Lost Tribes of Israel, there's a million different places where literally every corner of the earth has been touched by that story. Like, could, it, could the existing, you know, pygmy tribes deep in, the, in, the, uh, mm-hmm. in New Guinea, like, be remnants of the ancient, like, Lost Tribes of Israel? Like, people think crazy ideas like that. Well, so it's not so far. I don't know. The human it, condition not... is survive. So yeah. could they have made it that far? That's a great way to phrase it. Yeah. Um, do you want to get into some other, other yeah. ideas? Yes, a little I do. bit more on the woo-woo side well, of things. Well, the woo-woo and the into the portal side. I mean, they're woo-woo, but not... They're, they're good. They're, they're good. good. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> We're just going to throw it out there. Ghost ship, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm kind of jumping... Oh, should I do should I do the skeptic perspective or the believer perspective first? Well, because I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence with this one. Like I told you before we recorded that I'm not going paranormal with this what? one. And I'm I don't know. But anyways, the idea of a ghost ship is interesting because like it's it it does kind of fit with this whole theme. People see ships they're unattainable. They can never find them again, yeah. or they see them in the distance, and then whatever circumstance prevails, and they're yes. unable to actually get there. So you could interpret this as maybe 
again, like we, when we talked about the, um, oh my gosh, what was it on the east coast of Canada, the Halifax, the ghost ship? Yeah, there's a few phantom there was ships. There a few, um, and there was the one about the fire, and people thought that it was like a recreation of a, of a famous ship that yeah, went down in Chaucer flames. Chaucer Bay fire ship yeah, is what it was called, I believe. Exactly. So it, some people think that it's echoes from the past, and that these are recreations or like phantoms of real ships. Mm-hmm. Uh, could this just possibly be a hallucination though too, if you want to take the skeptic's perspective and be like, you could even interpret this as like a form of Fata Morgana, which we talked about in one of our Patreon episodes, actually with the Min Min Lights phenomena Mm. of Australia, which was a really fun episode. But this is interesting because Fata Morgana can be seen every day, right? If you look on into the distance, into, if you're staring at a body of water, ships may appear to be floating in midair. Yes. And it's all an illusion. It's all just, it's a, it's a trick of the light. <laughs> it is. Want, and a refraction of yeah. light. And so some people would, if you want to take skeptics aside, sorry, skeptics, it could be a possibility, right? Fata yeah. Morgana. But oh, you've mentioned though, and uh, Fata Morgana is interesting because a lot of people interpret it with the presence of water. If we have Lake Kauia around, there could be this, but there has to be something there, you would imagine. Not to say that obviously people hallucinate in the desert, and that is just a classic mirage. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Like, there's that so, totally as an explanation, right? Like, yeah. lack of water, dehydration. Dehydration leads to hallucinations alone, let alone um, mm-hmm. the existence of mirages if you're not completely dehydrated, yeah, right? Exactly. Like, it, it, that just happens. And we see it every day when you're driving down the road on a hot day mm-hmm. and you see it above the concrete. That is essentially the similar effect of a mirage, right? Mm-hmm. Like it looks like water or something mm-hmm. else on the road. That's exactly it. And even with people like Charlie, for example, going back to his story and how he never seemed to bring enough supplies, crucially water. Like, come on, man. You're just dehydrated and just... And it seems like... No, Like, I'm not surprised on that third mission, or was it the fourth at that point, uh, when he was with the newspaper editor, and Mm -hmm. he's just like, this guy's lost it. Okay. And here's... I just want to say this. Sorry. Okay. Okay. No, don't don't apologize. I just have to say. Dehydration. Number one killer in the desert. Charlie. Never brings enough water. But nobody in this era seems to wear breathable clothes. (laughs) Like I'm watching the documentaries, I'm lo- reading about, I'm reading about <laughs> these people and looking at their supplies and stuff, mm-hmm. and I'm like, everybody is wearing like essentially like you, you might as well, do, you've got like a full burlap suit on, like wear a pair of shorts, man, mm-hmm. and some gaiters or something. You're gonna burn your skin though. That's more dangerous. Well, you need to have your skin covered, but it doesn't have to oh, be light colors. Look at some linens. Like the Arabs have it. Like they're someone's wearing white got robes. some lighter. I mean, if you're smart, a leather vest is no place for the desert. Is all I can say. Are we done here? Okay. I'm <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, I feel like I've really put uh, a hole in this um, fun little balloon of our ghost ship <laughs> at this point. I, wait, okay. Wait a second. Before you say that, though, I do want to say that there are a ton of stories about the Spanish galleons that may or may not have made it onto Lake Coahuila and been, been left high and dry that were then violently raided by the existing indigenous tribes in the area. Mm-hmm. which would potentially mean that there would be a lot of restless souls left in and around the existence of what once was a ship high and dry in the sand, mm. which would be the perfect recipe for a ghost ship. That's exactly the scenario with the fire ship of Chaucer Bay. It's just violent death on True. a ship. True. So 
if we're going to maybe lean ghost ship, that has definitely come up in a lot of the stories where it's like, you know what, they went into the wrong spot and they couldn't turn around. And when they had to evacuate the ship, you were walking around in a place you were definitely not welcome. Mm, yeah, exactly. That's that's not not a good situation to be in, which is probably why they wouldn't have abandoned the ship, right? Because if they abandoned that, they've abandoned their treasure, obviously, and they've abandoned all their resources. Well, yeah. So you can't yeah. Really go far. Presum- well, I mean, you can only stay as long as you have your resources, though. I mean, like, how much water do you have? How much yeah, food exactly. do you have? And once that lake drains out, then who knows? Exactly. You know, one thing, though, <laughs> I just wanted to mention, I thought of this earlier in the episode, but I just didn't want to bring it up but there is also the idea that at this point in time there were a lot of indigenous tribes in the area and Mm -hmm. groups and populations that were moving about Mm -hmm. and no doubt would have seen something like this this would have not been unnoticed no and you would imagine that they would have made use of the resources that were left even if they were just pearls or gems or whatever it would have been useful for trade yeah. it would have been useful to make uh, like you know like headdresses garments whatever you want to make like you know like jewelry out exactly. of all that kind of stuff and that would know. be actually really interesting from like an anthropology perspective if someone could piece together that would be so hard to do but mm. say for example you could piece together like yeah you know headdress or yeah like jewelry and different things like that from southwest to Pacific coast and stuff like that and source the origins of the gemstones or the pearls or whatever if they were from you know what I mean like because that's the type of technology maybe we would have now but say it's like a black pearl that came from the Mediterranean well (laughs) that's an Mm -hmm. interesting idea if it's a really old piece of jewelry no that's an interesting of course they would have raided it right and this the same goes for any for pirates whether Mm -hmm. it was a Spanish galleon or a pirate ship and that's kind of another theory there's some loose records of galleons being stranded and mm-hmm. there's debate about it that we've mentioned, mm-hmm. but there's also the idea of pirate ships, obviously not on record, but they were super prevalent all up and down the coast. It was the main industry of the Spanish. It absolutely was. Mm-hmm. So could there have been a galleon? It would have been similar to a Spanish galleon, whether it was, a, a, you know, like a British ship or a Portuguese ship or whatever pirate ship we're dealing with here. But they're the type of people and that's the type of ship that would maybe decide to sail inland or be more, like, prone to do that. Like, let's go hide out in here. This is a big passageway. There's got to be a big body of water at the end of it. Mm -hmm. Let's sail in there. Mm -hmm. And then, sure enough, they get left high and dry. Mm -hmm. Because that's the alternate idea than the Spanish being like, we need to find an alternate route for our missions and our trade and whatever else. Mm -hmm. You know, they had a different intention. They weren't hiding Mm -hmm. from anything. I like that. I don't know. So that could have been an idea. It reminds me of <laughs> the only pirate movie I've ever watched. <laughs> well, obviously, like, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean. Of and course. there's that mythical island that the only people that can find it are the ones that know where it is. So if you don't know where it is, you're never going to find it. We could apply that to the lost ship itself, <laughs> which is kind of an interesting yeah. fictional idea. <laughs> Just total conjecture. But at the same time, you could... You can see the use, right, of going into these areas that maybe explorers, even though it was quite tantalizing, mm-hmm. to think that you could potentially find the passage that would right. connect back to the Atlantic yeah. or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, that I could. Pirates make sense. You have to stash your booty somewhere. You have to hide your ships. You have to, you know, have a lookout. You have to have a, a, a safe zone, or like, you know. Well, I mean, especially if you're being chased, like even if it's a place you hadn't been before, you know, it's like okay. I mean, there's galleons down that way. We should probably maybe scoot in here and hide yeah. for a bit, and then go the opposite direction. <clears throat> yeah. But even going back to the, or well, 
the ghost ship idea, um, maybe maybe these ships have a personality in and of themselves, right? Like the idea that like nobody can find it a second time. Like it's kind of similar to like ghosts of people messing with people. You know what hmm. I mean? It's like, hey, here's these. I am a treasure ship full of, laden with jewels. You know what I mean? Like, I don't even know. Like, there's oh, totally. an essence to it. Or like the Caliuche. Right? Exactly. That's very much uh, has a personality Totally. And, and then nobody can see it another time. Nobody finds it another time. It's just this tantalizing little fishing lure mm. out there for people, and then nobody can find it again. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Something really cool. And I've had a, I've had a great time researching this uh, topic. Yeah. I just want to go treasure hunting now, and I want to go mudlarking <laughs> that you've talked about before, and I just want to find as, cool things. Well, as soon as we're in England, we have to go mudlarking. Absolutely. I really want to. Um, yeah, thank you so much. You did all of the research for this episode. Oh, and well. I just know. contributed my little uh, pedantic, whatever, comments here and there. You so. had some marvelous <laughs> comments, and you added some You added some good stuff here, too. Don't set yourself <laughs> short. But, no, thank you guys so much for listening, and we want to hear what you guys have to think about, I mean, whether or not you believe there may be still a treasure Mm-hmm. buried beneath the sands somewhere out there in the mountains i know it's more populated but you never know like i said stranger exactly. things have happened right so yeah thank you guys hit us up into the portal mailbox at gmail.com we always love getting your emails about the show uh we do and we yeah we always love uh your emails and we we love everything we, <laughs> <laughs> we really do we just well no we we really appreciate everyone's feedback yeah. um it's it's really important it's so inspirational for especially you know when you're having a little bit of a hard day you're like you know Definitely. this is why i do what i do Definitely. And this is, yeah, it's all the gratitude We don't make much money doing this. We just love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and definitely be sure to check out Straight Up Strange Productions. Where we're just doing a soft launch. The website's up, though. It's just straightupstrange.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's lots of really cool shows. And we've had a lot of interest. So we're going through more. And we're going to add more and more and more to the lineup. And definitely bring you guys more content so if you're interested in that anything paranormal weird science um history related you know folklore all that stuff we're gonna have our website and our facebook group yes up and running pretty quick yeah so lots to look forward to definitely Mm -hmm. and uh, as always thank you very much to our producer charlene rambler and all of our patreon supporters we love you guys so much and Mm -hmm. if you uh haven't seen what we do on patreon hit us up it's just patreon.com forward slash into the portal and uh we've got a lot of cool stuff on there so come on check it out and help support the show Mm -hmm. and we will be back again hopefully next week with a film friday but definitely in a few weeks with another sweet episode for you guys so uh, (laughs) stay tuned